Wings with Wings Productions presents Chapter 35 of The Skylark Bell Skydive. I'm your host, Melissa Oliveri. In last week's episode, Farfalla finally saw Lucas, known to her as Marius, her long-lost love, and began devising a plan to reunite. In today's episode, we read Chapter 35, Roadblocks, in which Farfalla learns there are limits to Dialangi's powers. Today's podcast partner is The Activity Continues, which started out as a recap of the television show The Dead Files, but has expanded into other areas of the wild and wonderful unexplained phenomena. You may recognize their name as they are also members of the Bupod Network and have participated in collaborations which the Skylark Bell was part of in the past. Be sure to check the show notes for a link to their podcast. Now it's time to settle in, grab a blanket and a warm drink, and let's get started. I didn't know I wouldn't be able to warn myself. I feel an endless stream of frustration every time I try. Some unknown force prevents me from appearing face to face with myself. The best I can do is project myself into mirrors. I have tried time and time again to shout my warning and have failed every time. Finally, I watched in horror as my younger self sang the song of the oak tree while dancing in her bedroom, with the skylark bell ringing outside her window, effectively sending Marius back in time, or, as it turns out, forward in time. I let out a cry then. It was like living through his loss all over again. Once I came to terms with the fact that the only time I would ever spend with Marius were those short years in my youth, I put everything in place to ensure the events would happen exactly as I remembered. First, I arranged for Magpie to come into possession of the feather key that opens the box where I hid the Skylark Bell at Meadow Lane. I disguised the key as a blackberry to entice a blackbird, then commanded the bird to drop the berry into Magpie's lap. I knew the spell wouldn't last long. By the time Magpie got home, the key would have returned to its rightful form, ready to be found. Next, I ensured Marius came into possession of the feather ring, so he could use it to propose to me in the apple orchard behind Meadow Lane. It pained me to remove the ring from the chain around my neck, where I have kept it all these years, but it was what needed to be done. This time I called upon a crow to drop the ring at his feet while he was standing alone by the side of the road. Sure enough, he picked it up and tucked it into his pocket. Finally I came to the last point on the timeline, Magpie in her old age, preparing to warn her younger self not to go to Scotland with Marius, or Lucas as she calls him. I intervened and burned her letter. If Marius never goes to Carnifex's house, he will never travel to 1920's pocket, and he and I will never meet. I admit I was surprised when she grabbed my arm and time-traveled a few paces into the future in one last, desperate attempt to warn her younger self. But of course her attempt failed, and her time ran out. Despite having my plan in place, I still went back to Carnifex's house regularly, hoping to see him again. For years I checked, 
and all I ever found was her. There she was, pining away for him. Well, at least for the first year. Then she gave up on him, and eventually married the caretaker's son, the one whose friend I made vanish all those years ago. I had no interest in them, so I entertained myself by visiting some old childhood friends. More specifically, I went to the aviary finishing school for girls of distinction and paid a visit to Sadie Rhodes and Priscilla Ponceroy. I did manage to spot my younger self in the dark hallway and gave her a wink. It's the closest I've ever gotten to myself, but even that brief moment of proximity nearly did me in. I'm not sure what balance of nature is thrown off by our paths crossing, but it has an effect of nearly unbearable physical pain on me. I continued entertaining myself by spooking people who were unkind to their children or treated others unfairly. I would give them unsettling experiences, make them question what is real and what is imagined. I had an especially delicious bout with Agnes Sutherland. It only lasted a few weeks. I visited at night and made my face visible through her second-story bedroom window, just long enough for her to wonder if she had truly seen what she thought she saw. After a string of sleepless nights, she effectively lost her mind. Don't worry, it was a temporary situation. But that'll teach her to take my belongings and throw me in the back of a cart. I also paid a few visits to younger Magpie. I find a certain thrill in making the girl uneasy. At first, I made an appearance in the window at Meadow Lane, waiting for her to catch a fleeting glimpse of me before disappearing. Then, to my delight, I discovered that I am capable of not only imparting visions on her, but also inserting myself into those visions. I followed her to London and appeared to her on a cobblestone street. There I told her that the silence at Meadow Lane had not even begun. Oh, you should have seen the scared, confused look on her face. It was positively delightful. Now, now, don't get cross with me. I was just having a little harmless fun. Anyway, I eventually lost interest in playing the role of the Avenger and settled into a humble routine in the forest, occasionally checking on the inhabitants of Carnifex House through the years. Franny turned into a beautiful, independent young lady. She became passionate about writing and literature. She married a local man named Preston Maxwell, and they moved into Carnifex House after Donald and Isabella passed on. I visited her one night as she slept and saw a book on her nightstand. I just about fell over when I saw its cover, The Sky Lark Bell, by Frances Annabel Maxwell. All those years of Mama reading the book to me, and I'd never thought to make note of the author. Franny, the little girl who was indirectly responsible for my being thrown off a cliff, had written my favorite childhood story. Only it wasn't a story at all. It was a biography. I just didn't know it at the time. Felix grew up and moved to the mainland, excited to get away from the tragedy and strange occurrences that hang over Carnifex House. He became a successful businessman, then married and had a son, George Archibald. 
James's uncle, who must have at some point returned to live out his days on the island, then passed the property down to James. Poor, sweet James. Finally, one day, Marius returned. I saw him stumble into the house. I'm not sure how I missed his arrival. He would have appeared under the arch in the forest. But perhaps after all those years, I finally let my guard down somewhat. Finally gave up hope. Of course, he went straight to her. But I smiled, knowing he would find her now nearly twice his age. A few weeks later, they venture into the woods. They talked about their plan as they walked. She would go back in time to prevent him from ever going for a ride that fateful day, and everything would be made right. I giggled inwardly at their naivety. There's no way I will ever let that happen. Despite his disappearance, the time I spent with Marius in my youth was the most beautiful time in my life. I will not let anything alter the past, nor the future I envision for us now. I watched as she stepped under the arch. Then I sang the song of the oak tree and sent her on a wild goose chase through time. I was quite pleased with myself that day. I figure I will give him a couple of days to decompress before coming to him. Finally, at long last, we will be together. Farfalla watches from afar as Marius winds his way through the woods. She pulls her last acorn from the ancient oak out of her pocket and directs a squirrel to drop it at his feet. As expected, he stops in his tracks and takes a moment to bend and take it into his palm. He tucks it in his pocket before moving on, just as he did with the feather ring all those years ago. Farfalla assumes her position under the arch, quivering with excitement, and waits for him to round the bend. She takes a deep, nervous breath. She is certain he will recognize her. Being trapped in the ancient oak has caused her body to remain frozen in time, the years having no effect on her outward appearance. Farfalla feels her heart pounding. She and Marius are mere moments away from being reunited and fulfilling their destiny together. He will shout with joy when he sees her and spin her in his arms like he did that night in the apple orchard when he asked her to marry him. They will hold each other and laugh and cry and tell stories of their years apart. They will celebrate the holidays with music and dancing like they did at Meadow Lane. They will go for rides on horseback and race through the fields, the wind whipping their hair across their joyful faces. Farfalla peeks over her shoulder. Marius is taking an awfully long time. Perhaps he has made a wrong turn. She begins softly humming the song of the oak tree, both to pass the time and to help guide him. Within minutes, she hears his boots scraping the dirt path behind her. She feels Marius's gaze land on her back and a smile stretches across her face. Magpie, I knew you'd come back. The words, the name, pierce through her chest like a dagger made of ice. She feels her entire body stiffen, her fingers curl into fists. Of course, he is expecting her, hoping for her. What a fool she was, ever thinking he would hope for anyone other than his precious magpie. 
From the beginning, it was always about Magpie. Did she, Farfalla, ever mean anything to him at all? Or was she simply a convenient replacement, where he could no longer have the real thing? What a fool she'd been, all these years, thinking he was ever in love with her. Farfalla spins on her heel, rage boiling from her toes to the top of her head. She stares him straight in the eye, shouting the thought straight into his mind, I am not Magpie. She continues her singing, but somehow it turns into a high-pitched, chaotic, whistling sound. She watches as recognition washes over his face. Farfalla, he whispers. Immediately, Farfalla corrects him in her mind. Dialangi, Farfalla is no more. There is only Dialangi now. In a blind rage, she grabs the Skylark Bell from the folds of her robe and holds it high above her head. She somehow simultaneously continues to sing while letting out a shriek as she violently throws the bell to the ground, causing a blinding flash of light. The earth heaves under her feet. She can feel the motion in the air around her. Once the movement subsides, she opens her eyes to look around. Marius is gone. Thank you so much for listening. Join me next week for Chapter 36, Time Loops, in which Farfalla devises a plan to preserve the time in her youth when she and Marius were together, no matter the cost. The Skylark Bell is brought to you by Phaeton Starling Publishing and features original music by Canal. Leaving a rating or a review on your preferred podcast platform is incredibly helpful in helping the podcast gain visibility so others can find and enjoy the story of the Skylark Bell. It's a quick, easy, and free way to support my work. If you'd like to support me further, you can also subscribe to Patreon, where you'll get early access to ad-free episodes, as well as digital downloads of the music, artwork, behind-the-scenes videos, and so much more. And be sure to find me on social media for updates. I love to connect with listeners. Just check the show notes for all necessary links. Once again, thank you for listening. I'm Melissa Oliveri, writer, host, and producer of the Skylark Bell Podcast. <laughs>